This is Meatless, a podcast about eating from how we get to next. I'm Alicia Kennedy, a food and drink writer. I'll be having conversations with chefs, writers, and more about how their personal and political beliefs determine whether or not they eat meat. The show asks the question, how do identity, culture, economics, and history affect a diet? In this episode, I talked to Cassandra Rosario of Food Before Love, whose website and company focus on education and dining experiences. We talked about her Roots and Vines panel series, why wine education is significant to her community, and supporting women-owned small business. Hi, Cassandra. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I feel like I've seen you so much lately no, through panels really and at the James Beard House. And yeah, you just did this really amazing panel at Essex Street Market on African foodways in the diaspora. Um, do you, are you always out? Are you always out doing food stuff? How do you, how do you keep that schedule? I try to be. Um, (laughs) It's really hard. I think now it just being the holiday season, there's just a lot going on. Right. Everybody's trying to get out their events before the year's over kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I've just been working on being more present at more food things. So I think that's probably why we've run into each other a lot more (laughs) than normal. Um, So, yeah. And how how have these events been? What what have have you taken away from them recently? Oh, wow. Um, They've been pretty good. I've been loving the connections that I've been making, uh, getting to meet people like you. I only heard about you like in meetings and on (laughs) emails and just kind of putting a face to a name has been really exciting. The experiences have been all very different. I've been going to a lot of talks and, you know, I've been at the James Beard House a lot more this year than ever before. It's my first time going this year and I've been three times already. So, it's been refreshing. Uh, I feel like just kind of finding my tribe, finding my people, my food people. It's been fun. Yeah. And do you do you think the James Beard House is a welcoming space or do you think that it's been attempting to be more welcoming to a wider variety of people? I was going to say welcoming for who exactly? <laughs> well, it has a reputation as kind of a stuffy, very white place. Do you, do you feel like it isn't necessarily that? Do you think that might be a misconception? I think because I'm so excited to be there, I kind of let go of me being in observant mode. However, I do think it's still a very white space. I don't feel the stuffiness as much because I kind of stick with my people when I'm there. Right. Um, It's not as, there's not a lot of opportunity, I think, to mingle with other guests. You kind of go there with who you're with kind of thing. So that's a little tough. And I do find that I am one of the few black women that are there. You know, there might be five of us of color in the room at one time. So that's a little disheartening. Right. But um, yeah, I try to just let it go and remember that I'm here to connect with the food, here to support whatever chefs are, chefs are there. And I've really been trying to think about how can we make James Beard House more equitable for everyone. Totally. Right. And definitely after your dinner... You inspired me. And I'm like, I want to do that. I want to do what Alicia did. But how? And how can I get the people in the room that I want to be there as well? 
what does that look like? So it's definitely raised some questions for me as far as the work that I do and how do we make this a safe space for everyone? Right. I mean, for me, and I asked that question because when I was planning that dinner, the Navidad Boricanya dinner, I was concerned about what the audience might be there and how they would react to it. But it ended up being such an insanely like positive night. It was awesome. Yeah. And so I... I I think that my own preconceived notions of who the Beard House audience is have been have been shifted and it it has been a really great experience yeah to meet you to meet so many other people and like getting to sit with Clay and Colleen yeah. shout out to them um so yeah no it is it is an interesting space um so can you tell me to kind of shift gears about where you grew up and what you ate yeah so I grew up in East Harlem that's where I live currently that's where I'm from and uh, I'm, my family's Puerto Rican, so both my parents are Puerto Rican. I want to say by now I'm second generation. Yeah, I'm second generation, but uh, I was raised by my godmother. So she's she came from there to New York. Uh, growing up, I ate a lot of arroz con gandules, so a lot of rice and pigeon peas, chuleta, malta is a as a staple in my house, tostones, platanos, pastelon. I still eat a lot of those things all the time. So <laughs> I'm trying to think what else. So yeah, a lot of white rice and kidney beans, benin for sure, uh, pegao or concon or sticky rice, I guess you would mm-hmm. say. I remember you mentioned pumpkin and beans at yes. the panel. Can you tell me more about that dish? Yeah, so it was interesting because I was thinking about doing a pumpkin picking event or like just a little trip upstate. And we were talking about, well, how can we utilize these pumpkins afterwards? And it's like you get a bunch of pumpkins and now what do you do? I don't have kids, so who's going to be like carving these out? And we were talking amongst ourselves on how we can utilize the pumpkins. And I was like, well, in my house, I cook with pumpkins in my in my beans. Um, it's pretty normal and like a thing but some people were surprised that I do that and I was kind of surprised like you guys are not eating pumpkin (laughs) (laughs) it's kind of odd to me um so yeah it's been a staple in my house for a while just like cooking with some chunks of pumpkin and putting it in your beans and just eating that together how do you season that um, well, in the beans itself, some sofrito, some tomato paste, um, the regular seasoning, some garlic, some um, onions, uh, basil leaf. I just cook it as if like I'm cooking the beans itself. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I went on a press trip once to Puerto Rico and like was with a very strange crew of people from a lot from the middle of the country okay and they were so confused about pumpkin in puerto rican cuisine they were just like what pumpkin and just had no sense of it and then also yeah i I also remember one woman just being like so pumpkin like squash it's like pumpkin is a squash anyway is that (laughs) that's my pumpkin thing but yeah no it's i think people are surprised and we also we had pumpkin at at the dinner that mm-hmm. we did. So um, so Food Before Love is your brand, your company. Can you tell me how it began and what you do? Okay. How did it all begin? <laughs> uh, I went to school for to study hospitality and service management uh, upstate at RIT, and I thought that I was going to own a restaurant. 
But hospitality really interested me because I had a lot of interest at the time. And I felt that restaurants were a world where I could do everything I wanted to do, interior design, events, customer service, food, et cetera. And I really started to take it seriously and I pursued that. And when I left there, I was doing events for a caterer in the Bronx. And doing that kind of opened my mind to the possibilities of hospitality. I realized that I didn't have to own and run a restaurant for the rest of my life in order to be successful in this business. And events really kind of piqued my interest. And I was like, oh, I'm doing events. I'm doing food. This is awesome. I love this. But I ended up leaving there uh, to work at J.P. Morgan on a project, on a short-term, what was supposed to be a short-term project. And I had plans to go into meeting planning. I was like, oh, I could get some meeting planning experience and kind of get back to what I was doing. But maybe about seven months in, um, I was like, what am I doing here? Because the project was just extended like by three or four months. And I kind of felt like I was wasting time. Yeah. And I started thinking about what am I doing with my degree? Why am I not doing food in any way? And originally, I wanted to have my own show. So we had a couple of like food lovers amongst my coworker, my coworkers and stuff. And we were talking about putting on this show, this little like food show where we like go to restaurants and maybe it's like half reality, half scripted. But at the time, it felt really unattainable. It felt like, okay, I'm biting off more than I can chew. I don't have any TV contacts. Uh, what else could I do? And I was going out to eat a lot at that time, and I had a bunch of pictures in my phone, and people were always asking me where I was going out to eat. So I was like, I'm going to write. I'm going to write about this. And I started sharing um, a couple of reviews of places that I went to so that when people asked me, they had a resource that they could go to of where I was eating and what was good. So that's kind of where it began. But after about two months, people were like really reading it. And I was like, oh, shit, people are reading what I have to say. Uh, cool, I should make this a thing. So when I got my domain for Food Before Love and got my logo and everything, and at the time when I was coming up with the name, I was trying to figure out what is something that people can relate to, but also something that I can relate to. And I had so many names, a thousand names, like what, what's going to work? Um, but the name itself came because I really wanted to put food first. And I wanted to put myself first and my love for food. And at the time, I felt like people were trying to push me in other directions as professionally. And I was kind of like, well, this is what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it was about prioritizing that. And that's why it's food before love. But love is never out of the equation. However, I'm not the nicest person when I'm hungry. <laughs> And I felt like that was something that other people could relate to as well. And food is really a lifestyle for so many of us. So that's kind of where Food Before Love came about and where it grew from there. Awesome. So you are doing events like Roots and Vines at the Essex Street Market. Was that, that wasn't the first one you've done? It was. It was. Okay, amazing. So then I can go to all of them. Um, But yeah, you were exploring foodways and you know, starting wine education, what inspired this series? And, and also like, how are like looking at how African foodways are reflected in the, in the diaspora, how does that connect to wine for you? So two part question. <laughs> okay. 
Oh man, I've been trying to do this event for two years. So wow. I was really excited to like finally put it on and like really kick off Roots and Vines. But it kind of came from just having normal conversations amongst my food community about things that bother us, things that um, we talk about lightly on social media, but we don't really have a place where we can go and talk about it outside of that in person. And while I love what social media has done for food and where we are today, um, I think people just crave that human interaction. Right. And I'm also tired of going to panels where I feel like people are talking at me instead of making me a part of the conversation. So I really wanted to be more communal. And that's something I'm going to work on for the future events of like making it more of a communal conversation because people have so much to say. And you saw at the event, like even the feedback, like we started getting into discourse. Like that's what I want. Right. Um, so yeah, this is one of the topics that always comes up. And I think now as identity is such a popular thing, um, we don't talk about how it's reflected in food. You know, we talk about skin color and we talk about traditions, but are we talking about how food transcends time and how we are connected to each other in that way, uh, which is why I was inspired to talk about that. And I just think that Africa just shows up in so many foods every day and we need to give more credit to it. And I think as I work on just learning my heritage and learning who I come from, it's something that I wanted to unpack as well amongst others. Now, with the wine piece of it, uh, we did a trip to to Hudson Valley and we we went grape stomping. We did a wine tasting. And wine has just been something we've been talking more about lately. And I've, I've been to a couple of panels where they were talking about wine and they tried to talk about the diversity piece of it, but no one was bringing up, if they did touch on it, no one was bringing up the education piece. Right. So... I'm like, you want to reach more black and brown bodies, but the lack of education is there because no, there's no platform for that if you're not seeking it out yourself. And right. sometimes you have to give people it so that they know what they actually need. And that's why the wine piece is so important for me because, I mean, I know people that drink wine all the time. Yes. <laughs> uh, and, you know, if you have a favorite, that's probably the one that you drink all the time. And there's so many more of them out there that, you know, I want to talk about, I want to learn about, I want to experience. So I I love for the event to just talk about something that's rooted in us, in us culturally, in tradition, and then also add the wine education piece. Um, and I also... You know, we talked about at the event how everything's very Eurocentric, but African wines exist as well. Right. You know, there are um, even immigrant-owned wineries, you know, across the coast that don't get the attention that they deserve. They don't get the, you know, they're not getting what they need right now, and we should be talking more about them. So I want to start connecting those dots as well. That's great, yeah. And Mexican wine, too, is yeah. kind of having a moment that... That people should explore more. Um, I also noted on your panel that you brought together a lot of women who have started their own businesses, and so have you, and like carved out spit their own space in food and in food media. And do you see that that as significant? Like you, 
I I love this because I love a, some DIY shit, but it's like, you know, carving out space and like not depending on gatekeepers to, you know, uh, give you the credentials or give you the, mm-hmm. the, to say, okay, yes, you're okay. We'll let you in. Well, you're, you're okay to be on a panel or, or, you know, to speak or to write for our publication, et cetera, et cetera. So why do you see that as significant and, and why did you choose those women specifically for that panel? Well, I chose them because I felt like they were all very different. Yeah. And that was very big for me. And I think you could see that just listening to them speak and just their very different experiences. Right. Um, I just wanted to add that to the event. And I think a lot of the time, some of the gatekeepers, even if they're people of color, not to say that they have the same story, but the trajectory of their careers might be a little similar. And with these women, it's not in the very, right, in the right. least. Can you give a little background on each of them? Yeah. So Vonnie Williams, uh, she actually was formerly a part of this group called the Black Forks. And she's now doing her own thing at Sincerely Vonnie. But I love that she was Ghanaian. And we were talking about Africa, had been to Ghana earlier this year. So I just wanted her to add that personal touch just growing up and, you know, what she could add to. So she's also a food writer. She's an incredible writer as well. Right. I think she got her first first food and wine. Yeah, she was just featured on Food and Wine today. And she just talks about food and culture in a way that I love and respect And I really thought she'd be a great addition uh, to the event. She also has curated events um, for us, by us. And I love what she's doing in the food world. Like she creates a space for people to feel comfortable, for people to experience. And it's very in line with what we do at Food Before Love. So I felt like she'd be a great fit. Um, And then just talking about food media in a way, you know, just talking about how we're portrayed in food media. I wanted her to add that as well. Then uh, Cha McCoy, she's a sommelier. She's also an event curator. She does the communion. And at her event, she really demystifies wine. Like, it's insane. I went to her event on Sunday. And the things that I learned about wine that I didn't know before, I'm like, (laughs) okay, cool. But it feels accessible. It doesn't feel overwhelming. And she just makes it feel easy. Um, But she's also someone that's very fun. And she's experienced the world. You know, she's very well traveled. And just her growing up uh, experiences were very different. You know, she talked about eating snails as a kid. I didn't, I haven't even eaten snails yet, (laughs) you know? And it's funny because I get a lot of questions about what's the weirdest thing you've eaten and stuff like that. So that was really fun um, to see that. And I see myself in each of these women as well. So being able to do that um, was really important for me because then I feel like there's someone in the audience that can relate to someone, if not all. Uh, And then Isanette with Woke Foods, I just, one thing that she mentioned on the panel that I love is she talked about how she doesn't really believe in being vegan, but she believes in being Mm plant-based and what that looks like. And she really kind of changed my perspective on what that actually means. And Uh, As a Latina, I just love that she's Dominican and she was able to speak to kind of some of our Latin uh, cultural traditions that she plans on, you know, to keep going. And just her being such an advocate for agriculture and farmers and just people that are the consumers that we speak to, uh, I felt was really important. 
Absolutely. And yeah, why that topic for your first panel? I mean, you got to come out the gate with it, right? (laughs) Uh, I really wanted to set the tone for what these panels are going to look like and what what we're actually going to talk about. Right. And I think that right now in food media, no one wants to ruffle feathers. You know, we talk about amongst food writers, we talk about pitching stories and pitching stories that matter. But I question if these publications actually want them. Right. You know, and who are they willing to kind of, quote unquote, put out on the line for these stories? So, you know, these these conversations can be a little uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we haven't even gotten to the nitty gritty of the uncomfortable piece yet. But we have to be ready to go there. Right. So that's how I wanted to talk about African foodways and, again, talk about how we're so much more alike than we are different. And I really love that the events are more like of a debate as well. Yeah. Um, Because, again, with the comment section, we have these debates in the comment section. It's like, where can we have them out loud? And where can it be a learning moment uh, for those of you that, for those that know and those that don't? Right, right, right. No, and and even in the audience afterwards where usually... I personally am afraid of a Q&A section because I'm like, who's going to say something weird? Right. Who's going to who's gonna, ugh, just make everyone upset? Um, but it was it was like very communal in that moment. Like people were like wanting to learn. They were like, what are the good podcasts to listen to? And like right. my restaurant is over here and it's so such a struggle, but like it's so important that we that we put our food out there and that sort of thing. And so it was like you really did bring together a group of people somehow that, I don't know, cared and weren't yeah. there for themselves, but like there for a community. And what is the next one going to be? Because it's it's very relevant to my podcast, I believe. Yeah, so <laughs> we don't have a date yet. Yeah. I'm working on it. Uh, but the next one we're going to talk about just how – classism creeps into being vegan right and what that looks like and what really sparked that for me uh was just this like someone was ranting on twitter oh boy yeah about (laughs) about how being vegan is not as easy as it looks but Mm -hmm. then i have other conversations where people say it is easy we just don't have again the education around how to make it work for you right so i think that's very interesting and uh, just my editor and I always talk about just the disparity of access to food in our neighborhoods, right? Right between the grocery stores being moved out and something new being pushed in, or just a more expensive grocery store replacing the old one. And it's like, how can I live this lifestyle and without the access? I mean, and you just look at fast food and how a burger can be three bucks, but the salad is twelve. Yeah, and that's. That's by design. Mm -hmm. You know, that's there for a reason. So let's unpack that. Like, Mm -hmm. let's talk about it. And let's talk about how do we combat that now and who are who are our gatekeepers, you know, on a lower level. Right. Not like who you see on TV or who you might not even know about. But who do you know in your community that can help you get to that space if that's where you're trying to work on? Right. even like just like your local gardens, you know, and what's being grown there and, and how do you have access to that? Uh, and then with the wine, 
just vegan wines in general. Right. A lot of people don't know that vegan wines exist. And mm-hmm. they're like, what is that? What is vegan wine? <laughs> you know, and I don't know too much about vegan wine, but I know things like fish oil and just different chemicals that are in most of the wines that we drink. So just having access to vegan wines, how do you ask for that at your local wine store? Right. And just like kosher wines as well. Mm-hmm. So those things they're out there. Right, right, So right. we should talk about them. We should experience them and see if it's something that we like. And I think wines are a lot different than food in the sense that, like, people think about recreating dishes and stuff like that. And it's like, for me, the wine tastes the same. Mm-hmm. Like, vegan wines taste the same. It's a little more, I think you can adapt a little easier to the wines. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I just want to have more conversations around that. Yeah, yeah. No, vegan wine is... Interesting because, yeah, it, I think it's usually cheaper wines that are not vegan because they've been fined with like filtered through either Crap. egg white or the fish bladder or that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's an interesting discussion. And like natural wine now is such a huge thing and they're all vegan pretty much. So that's, I hope there's natural wines. <laughs> um, but yeah, you, I remember you telling me that you consider yourself a flexitarian. Yeah. Uh, I did see on Instagram today that you were trying to switch to oat milk. Oh, it's happened already. <laughs> it's pretty much happened because in the mornings, uh, at least for the past six months, I make a smoothie for breakfast mm-hmm. and I've been drinking it with almond milk. And then it's been really tough just going back to whole milk. I had a sinus infection and like whole milk, my body was rejecting. Mm-hmm. So I thought maybe it was because I was sick and now I, I like can't drink it at all. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm sorry to hear that, but I'm also happy to no, hear I'm, that. <laughs> I don't miss it. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I love almond milk and I've really been loving oat milk. Yeah. I haven't bought it at home, but when I'm like out at a cafe, oat milk is like my thing. What is it that you like about it? It just tastes really good. Um, and like I said, I don't miss whole milk at all. Yeah. I just feel better and it it's lighter. It's been going well with everything I've been mixing it with. Mm-hmm. So that's good. I've been enjoying it. Yeah. 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 Um, so what, what does flexitarianism look like in your daily life? What does it look like? I've been trying to eat a lot better this year. Mm -hmm. So I've been like identifying as flexitarian a lot more lately than not Uh because my, I feel like my mind and my palate has been opening up to so many more options that I'm like, oh, this is really cool. Like I like other things. (laughs) Um, But also when I was sick, I couldn't eat red meat. Mm. So I've been like not eating red meat like barely at all this year. Mm-hmm. Um, so in my daily life, I eat a lot of quinoa. I eat a lot of salads. Uh, I'm still eating a lot of rice and beans at home. Um, I've been eating a lot of fish lately. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much it. Yeah, yeah. I've been going out to some vegetarian restaurants like a what? lot more than not. Um, the last best place I went to was Nick's. Oh yeah. I do like Nick's. And like since then, I just feel like so pleased with life. (laughs) Like the food was so incredibly good and I normally don't go to a vegetarian restaurant on purpose. Mm -hmm. And now I only want to go there. I mean, yeah, they do an incredible job there. They do. So now I'm like, okay, how can I recreate this at home? 
Um, what else can I get? And even at the James Beard house, like we had this amazing carrot. Right. The veg pastrami spice carrot. Yes. So it's like, how can I do this at home? Um, I mean that, I think that that carrot takes like two days or something. Someone said that carrot was incredible. <laughs> yeah. So I just feel like I'm opening up to more options. And like I said, with Isanet talking about being more plant-based than being vegan and right. what that looks like, I'm like, okay, I want to know what that, what does that mean for me? Right. No, I think plant-based for some reason is, is the word or phrase that people need to make a, to make a leap that doesn't feel cumbersome. It, like so For many sure. people say that, that like when they hear plant-based, they think, okay, I can do that. When they hear vegan, they immediately think of all the worst stereotypes in their minds. Um, but, and it's rice and beans. That's what everyone brings up. Whenever I talk to people about class and veganism or vegetarianism, everyone is like, well, every culture in the world cooks rice and cooks beans and it's not expensive to do that. Yeah. Some plantains. Yeah. You're good. Yeah. You're good. And so I'm, I'm really, I'm really excited for whatever you put together around this issue because I, it does need to be demystified because I do. And I see people talk about it so much online, just like, like memes or whatever, where people just these fake, like these vegans that I don't know, I don't know the vegans who like think that, you know, being vegan is so easy or like, that I don't know. Just the the way people talk about veganism is so strange to me. Well, I also think being vegan became a trend at one point. At one point, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. everyone in Brooklyn was vegan, <laughs> and then it and then all of a sudden thing. everyone was into bacon. That too. <laughs> and I mean, I I think we need to talk more too about how restaurants play a role in this as well, totally. because you look. There's just so many limited options. It makes me sick. Yeah. And it's just like there's just one vegetarian option. Yeah. You know, and God forbid they make it vegan at the restaurant. (laughs) So that as well and how the restaurants play a role because if it's only a vegan restaurant, you know, fine. But if it's not, you know, how do they... um, How do they help everyone eat? Like how do they help everyone enjoy the experience? Right. So I think that's been a challenge for people as well because it's like, okay, I go out to eat a lot, but I, there's nothing there when yeah, I go. There's absolutely. like this one dish yeah. and you're stuck to that one item and everyone else has eight things to choose yeah. from. It's just not fair. It, no, it's not. <laughs> um, so to you, is cooking a political act? I think cooking can be a political act, absolutely. Um, and... Again, just back to visibility, right? Right, Because everyone cooks, you know, and all cultures cook. And now we talk about, well, we look at appropriation of different cultures and we look at different restaurant openings and who's on the, who's the face and who's actually cooking in the back and who gets to take the credit for it. Um, I do think that those things do become political and I do think what we eat at home as well you know, and what we're able to have access to in our homes and what we don't. Right. And do you, do you keep this in mind when you buy food or when you cook? Like how does, how does, how do you kind of enact uh, your beliefs when you're eating either out or at home? Um, yeah, I do keep it in mind. I think earlier this year I was living in Atlanta for a little bit 
And that was really hard grocery shopping. Oh, wow. Because they have like a ethnic aisle. Mm. Like it literally says like ethnic foods, <laughs> ethnic aisle in yeah. most supermarkets. So that was a little tough for me. Like if you don't go to certain neighborhoods, you can't find it versus I live in East Harlem. So I have access to all the stuff that I want. Um, but I think just, you know, approaching managers and approaching, um, you know, the powers that be to make more requests for what's accessible. Because mm -hmm. even in Atlanta, um, a lot of their ethnic foods were like Mexican foods or Mexican known brands. And I wanted some Goya brand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I couldn't access it. So I would have to make a request, you know, and I, I don't know if making those requests, um, Obviously, they won't change overnight, but just showcasing that need for like, I, I'm here. Yeah. I live in these neighborhoods and I want to feel represented through the food um, is really important to me, especially if you want to feel connected to back home and you can't. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much, Cassandra, for being here.